Yeah, I'm recording. And we're back. Screen Heat Miami. Another day, another podcast, a lot of heat. It is getting to official summertime in Miami, and we're already feeling the heat, Kevin. Yes, there are things that are moving. This industry came to a screeching halt in terms of live production. In terms of live production. But in terms of what's going on around the country, it's heated up a lot of conversation in the industry. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I have to introduce myself, Kevin Sharpley, and I'm yes, here sir, J- with my co-host, Mr. JL Martinez. Yes, we're here. <laughs> and we cannot forget our sponsors who have helped us through this entire situation, Cinevision. And the Miami Media and Film Market. Pajik Multimedia. And Kamakul. So, we're excited about our next guest. Oh, you got to talk about this guest. That is, this is going to be an exciting, exciting interview. You are in store for some really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, the timing is just right. Mr. Dudley Alexis, he won the big prize at the Miami Film Festival. The $30,000 cash prize. The Made in... MIA Awards, sponsored by the Knight Foundation, for his film, which touches upon the riots in Miami that were sparked off by the police chasing yeah. Mr. McDuffie. Arthur McDuffie, yeah. Yeah, this was uh, an incident that took place way, way back in the, the turn of the decade, the 70s coming into the 80s. Uh, and we touch upon in the interview so much going on in Miami at the time, but this really just kind of lit literally a flame. Uh, the film is called When Liberty Burns. So you can imagine uh, how intense of a time that was and very relevant to what we've been experiencing here in the U.S. recently. Yeah, they beat Mr. McDuffie to death. And when they had the trial, all the officers were acquitted. Mm-hmm. So it sparked off definitely the biggest riot in Miami history, one of the biggest riots in U.S. history, um, and protests. It wasn't just a riot, it was protests. And, you know, we can see up until today, we're still having the same issues. So it was apropos for Mr. Alexis to debut his film at what many are considering to be Um, the last festival before the pandemic happened, the Miami Film Festival. And it was an electric screening. And, um, you know, that film lit the Miami Film Festival on fire. As I said, it it went on to win. So Mr. Alexis, in this interview, um, really uh, dives into uh, the production of the film, the way that the community reacted to the film and during those particular protests and riots, and then, you know, related to what's happening today. 
So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much of how it relates today. And, you know, everything that we're going to get into in terms of, of content and diversity and, uh, and how much is going on in the world right now, uh, you know, and, and giving more filmmakers a chance to tell these stories because they're relevant to our lives more than ever. Right. Yeah, definitely. And that's also sparked off, you know, there was a big diversity push, you know, over the past, you know, two years or so, two or three years, uh, which, you know, it died down a bit. It's now become, as we say here at Screen Heat Miami, um, blazing. And, you know, these diverse stories that touch upon communities that haven't necessarily had as much of a voice uh, are definitely necessary. And, um, you know, I'm looking to see uh, more of these stories connect and, uh, and, and, and uh, have uh, production cycles. So we'll see mm. what happens when we do actually go back into live production. But we know that there's a huge demand for more content because the streamers are opening at a rapid click. We just had oh, a yeah. streamer open last week. Much oh, anticipated. Much yes. anticipated. It, much anticipated. Yes, the, the, the drop of HBO Max. You know, I think we can no longer call it the streaming wars. They should call it like the gushing wars or something because it's, it's, no, <laughs> it's just coming at us at such a furious pace now that, you know, HBO Max being the latest major player to enter this market you know obviously they had versions of it before with you know hbo anywhere hbo go uh but this kind of brings the whole at&t warner brothers family together under one umbrella and it's it's interesting you know and it, it is packed heavily with hbo content i've been toying around with it uh myself uh with my at&t subscription so i kind of get grandfathered into that one i don't have to add it to an extra bill <laughs> now it just kind of gets <laughs> right rolled into my package but um yeah i've been you know checking out some of their original stuff you know some of the stuff on hbo that i haven't had a chance to catch up on like barry uh, i've been binging barry it's a really cool show i don't know if you've seen it um yeah i saw the first two episodes you know it was yes i liked them you know everyone has their own cup of tea so but <laughs> <laughs> absolutely you know so when uh, when they first announced hbo max you know, I was a little bit skeptical because, you know, HBO is the brand, you know, it, it, it certainly is, you know, the signature benchmark for, um, for any of the, you know, cable, uh, companies. So, you know, I was just wondering what type of content, uh, they would add or be able to add that maintained that, you know, top tier, uh, marker. So, right. You know, and looking at the offerings, you know, which are very diverse, um, you know, I think that it still holds a lot of the same gravitas. I haven't been able to explore as much. I downloaded the app the second day. I couldn't download it the first day. You know, they had over 10,000 downloads already on, I mean, 10 million downloads already on the first day. So, yeah. Yes. A similar sort of situation to what we saw back in November when Disney Plus launched and they had uh, a lot of sort of glitches because so many people were trying to download the the app at the same time. And eventually, you know, it kind of evens out and then they kind of fix it. 
and they, they kind of move forward. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see, you know, their diverse lineup, obviously Disney plus having the Avengers and, you know, the DC comics family being part of HBO max, including, you know, the, the award-winning Joker films, uh, that that's just you know was was lighting up not only the box office but the award season this past uh, uh, winter and so now you have the opportunity to have a home where you can create more of these sort of offshoot of content using the DC universe using you know uh, all the Harry Potter films are on there now so you know what else could they do there you know plus HBO and, and everything else but you know I think the one concern for HBO initially was that you know they're used to taking their time with their IPs and with their content it takes them oftentimes years uh, you know, to get a show ready and they're like a little jewel box, but it seems like now with HBO Max and AT&T being the parent company, they're really pushing them to produce at a higher clip than they're yeah. used to. And we'll see how they respond to that. Yeah. And, you know, that just kind of leads into, you know, what's happening industry-wide because content, you know, you need content to fill these streamers. You need content to fill the networks. You need content... <laughs> You know, films, you know, the theaters are opening up slowly and we're waiting, you know, with bated breath to kind of see what's going to happen with the theaters. But for the streamers, you know, it's huge demand for content. There's been, you know, not a lot of live action production uh, that has happened over the past three months. So although there were still productions that were in post-production and, you know, they're still coming out, three months void of production I'm sure creates a, a big hole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there, there's definitely uh, an issue there in terms of the pipeline being shut down for these critical months as all these new streamers are opening up and devouring content, plus the fact that folks are literally just sitting at home and binging entire platforms, you know, seemingly over the weekend. And and yes, and so it's, it's interesting that now heading into June, it, it looks like LA County is opening, right? And they're, they're allowing productions to resume in LA County, uh, which is sort of ground zero for, you know, the industry. And so we'll see kind of where that goes. And, you know, obviously not going to be able to produce, at least not initially at the same clip and at the level that we're used to seeing because of all the social distancing and the new safety measures that, that will be put in place by the industry. Well, <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm interested to see what's going to happen because, you know, I run a production company. It's a smaller production company, but I'm scared to shoot. And the reason why I'm scared to shoot, and we'll talk about, you know, this insurance issue uh, after the jump. But um, if anybody gets sick, you just don't know what could happen. You know, they can sue you. They could sue the company, you know, lawsuits flying all over the place. You know, you, you can have you know, your, your crew sign waivers. And so that's, I think is, is one um, way to mitigate it, but it's still uncharted territory. So I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with the LA opening, but I can tell you something else that is happening in terms of things that are being produced. Something really cool happened yesterday that I personally haven't seen, but um, I think JL, you've you've seen this comedy special. Yeah, and I actually caught it on YouTube, believe it or not. They just put it on YouTube, and I uh, I just caught it this morning, and I sent it over to you. But yeah, Dave Chappelle did sort of an impromptu 30-minute set uh, 
uh, in his neighborhood in Ohio, just kind of on a ranch. And he just kind of invited the local neighbors over basically to his place and set up tents. And he had like a whole little, you know, stage, uh, I guess with, you know, this facade in the background or, or like a backyard or something. It was literally like a backyard barbecue. Obviously they, they kept a social distance. People were in tents, but separated into little clusters. And he just came up on set and just kind of riffed for 30 minutes. It was, it wasn't his hard hitting comic material though. It was really more focused, you know, on the George Floyd situation. And it was, you know, very impactful, almost like a, like an inspirational sermon from one of our great comedic minds. So it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Oh, YouTube. Okay. I thought it was Netflix, but uh, he just dropped it on YouTube. Was it on their, their platform? You know, was it, you know, something that Dave Chappelle was contracted to do or was it just on his YouTube station? I don't know, but I've, I've heard a lot, you know, from folks in that industry that Dave is very kind of just sporadic and just yeah. impromptu or certain things. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he, I know that, you know, he'd been asked to speak on this subject since it happened and a lot of celebrities and, and he does talk about that, why he just decided to stay silent and he's speaking now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I don't want to give any spoilers away. So I want you to see it. But yeah, it's uh, it, it seems like he just kind of just woke up one morning and said, I'm gonna do it, man. <laughs> just went on stage and started riffing on the subject and just, you know, like I said, set up a stage, invited some folks over, had a camera guy film it. And that's it. That's how how it kind of felt to me is that it was just kind of pieced together by him and he just kind of woke up one morning and decided to do it. So, yeah, I don't I mean, know. If yeah. D- Dave, uh, you know, is, you know, very cerebral and introspective. So I'm sure yeah. they didn't want to shoot the gun uh, prematurely, right. which, you know, yeah. has really shot a lot of people in the foot over the past few days. So, Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I got to give yeah. it up to him for, you know, thinking about this stuff first before uh, yes before jumping out there so no, and he's you're right he is he's very thoughtful he, he kind of you know lets things sort of simmer for a while and he becomes very introspective before he kind of you know gives his perspective on things and he certainly does that with this interesting piece and it's i think it's already over two and a half million views uh in oh, less wow. than a day so it's it's definitely going viral for sure yeah well it certainly is timely and relevant just like our guest that's coming up right now, Mr. Dudley Alexis, a filmmaker that is, um, you know, one to be reckoned with. Oh, absolutely. This, this was such an inspirational interview, and I think you'll all enjoy it. And so, yeah, I say let's get into Dudley, and, and we'll be back on the other side. Let's, <laughs> let's get this going. Love it. Uh, so, yeah, we're here with Dudley Alexis, a very talented local filmmaker. Uh, as we mentioned, coming out of the Miami Film Festival's, I guess, half life um where he won a very prestigious award for his uh just powerful documentary when liberty burns about the arthur mcduffie riots uh way back in 1980 and the way he was able to capture that and put together those interviews and that footage is really timely right kevin yeah i mean this was really a huge hit at the miami film festival at the end of the screening you looked around you saw some people in tears Um, You could feel the emotion. It was gut-wrenching. And, you know, I really feel that it was prophetic. You know, um, I've known Dudley for many, many years. We've worked together on numerous projects. I'm an associate producer to his uh, documentary uh, that he did right before this one. And, you know, very thought-provoking filmmaker. Um, His work, you know, definitely hits the nail on the head every time. And 
out of all moments to have a documentary of this type. Um, you know, it just really, really, uh, you know, rings your heart. So uh, very happy to have uh, Dudley Alexis here on Screen Heat Miami. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, I don't know what to say. Thank you for the introduction. And thank you for having me. You make me sound much better than I think. <laughs> but thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, no problem, Dudley. And, and of course, you know, you won the top prize as far as the Made in Media Award, which is sponsored by the Knight Foundation. So congratulations on that as well. Uh, so thank the film, you. obviously, yeah, just just an amazing start to this journey. So tell us, you know, obviously, we always like to take a step back with our guests, even before you got into this film. Uh, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Well, originally from Haiti. I was born in Haiti and, you know, moved here in the... Um, in the late nineties, I remember like, you know, the year that I moved because it's like 1999, that was Y2K year. I remember really well, people were going crazy. So, <laughs> so that's why I remember, you know, I, so it's a, so I pretty much half my life going, going here in the States and half my life in Haiti, you know? Yes. Wow. So uh, this is really interesting. We're going to jump into when Liberty burns um, in just a minute. But uh, your documentary before When Liberty Burns is about Haiti and a personal journey yeah. about Haiti. So can you tell us a little bit about that documentary? Uh, uh, that was Liberty in a Soup. Uh, that was my first feature documentary. And, and what's interesting about this documentary was a personal project. And, and it was one of the most personal um, I, all I can say this was one of the most personal projects I've done and uh, and and it was kind of a journey it was a journey you know self-discovery understand your culture understand who you are and that's what that uh, that project was for me and um and in many ways it was a really really tough project a tough project to do and tough project to get through yeah um, it, that also made a huge splash um that one uh, per, uh did showcase at the Miami Film Festival as well yeah. And I think, you know, in the audience, there wasn't necessarily, you know, the same emotional outpour as uh, when Liberty Burns, but certainly it did uh, evoke a lot of discussion. Uh, Haiti has been through a lot. And, you know, we all remember the earthquake in 2010 that uh, was a crisis moment for Haiti um, before 2010. And I've spent a lot of time in Haiti. You know, I have a couple of projects about Haiti. Um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, feeling that Haiti was going to, you know, move forward and, you know, tackle a lot of the issues that were going on. And that earthquake uh, did a lot to um, slow down that momentum. Can you talk a little bit about your, your, your country and um, how you feel about uh, what has happened up until this point? And, you know, what's happening now? Have you uh, been in touch there on the, on the island with people uh, during this crisis? Well, yeah, actually, I've been in touch. You know, I've been talking with um, my father, you know, was still living in Haiti. I talk to him when, uh, constantly. And it's, uh, it's interesting to see the, when, the, when the whole crisis started, when the whole pandemic started, at the beginning, um, 
oh, people thought Haiti had a lot of control on, on the virus because we, we were not getting that much, that many um, infections. But now all of a sudden, you know, we have an explosion of, of an infection happening, and it's a uh, it's 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 now hitting the island really really hard. Um, but you know, it's it, it, we we you know Haiti is a cool place. You know, we you know people persevere. You know, people you know people know how to survive. And 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 this pandemic is just gonna be another thing that we go through. Uh, you know, my my previous documentary. You know, one thing what I like. You know, um, when I did this documentary, it was there was so many stuff that was happening about the earthquake. You know. Uh, a lot of NGO-based kind of projects, you know. Um, when I started doing this documentary, one, the thing I wanted to focus on is not really the earthquake, but it's like who we are as a people, you know, who uh, who Haitians are, you know. My, you know, uh, in my projects, you know, every time I talk about Haiti, it's what I'm trying to make people understand is like, you know, a lot of the stuff that you hear, a lot of the, you know, like yeah, kind of become stereotypes, you know, kind of cliche about who, who Haiti is. So I, I try to talk about who we are and, you know, um, and, you know, and make people understand who, you know, the Haitian people are. Yeah, Haiti is one of my favorite countries in the world, one of my favorite places in the world. And I think if um, people would understand Haiti the way that I do, that love uh, would be extended. And, you know, um, a lot of the conversations, as you said, uh, you know, have, you know, some of those cliches that you mentioned, but certainly there are so many, you know, beautiful places and, 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 um, you know, the people of Haiti are, you know, some of the most heartfelt uh, people that around the world. So um, I do want to get into when Liberty burns. So, you know, as you're finishing your last documentary, were you already thinking about when Liberty burns? What was the impetus towards doing this documentary? I mean, it's timely now. You know, uh, what, what happened is when, when I was finishing uh, Liberty in a Soup, uh, and I was just about to start premiering the documentary, a friend of mine really, you know, got into altercation with the police and, uh, and, and he, he was killed. And this is, this is what actually put this in the back of my mind. I started really researching, uh, especially around Miami, you know, the relationship between police and, and, uh, and 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 the and the black community and how it, in Miami and and I come came across the story of Arthur Lee McDuffie and to see this happen in Miami but no one no one really know exactly uh, you know including me I didn't know much about it so I started doing all my research reading books reading newspapers you know and I said this is a story that I need to be told because especially people in my generation don't know about the actual riot and we're living in Miami, you, you, when you're traveling in Liberty City, uh, you, uh, especially, you can still see the, the, the scars of the riot because the, the, the empty lots are still there, the, um, where businesses used to be all empty. So I wanted to, you know, talk about and bring up the conversation about that history of Miami. And, and, and I feel like talking about it, you understand a lot of why stuff was structured in Miami in certain ways, you know, and 
and and and one, one another thing I find out, I get you know, uh, when I start working, um, you know, when 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 you go to work and you hear um, your your friends like talking about those neighborhoods, those black neighborhoods, like to talk about them, like nobody's you know in such a demeaning way. Like it, 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 I feel like. You know that conversation need, needed to happen, and that's what I told. You know, I wanted to t- tell the documentary. Yeah, you know, you know I, I remember when uh, when your friend was killed and how that affected you. I mean, yeah. um, you, you really uh, it was a tough time. You know, yeah. um, I think you know for our listeners, it might be good to get a little bit more background on what happened. So can you tell us uh, a little bit more? Because, you know, this was one of the, the biggest riots in U.S. history, actually. Um, yeah, so can you give us a little bit of background, the background of exactly what happened and then, um, you know, how you built the story? Well, it, uh, the, this is pretty much uh, this is pretty much the story of like. McDuffie was, you know, on his motorcycle, tra- uh, traveling, you know, from from Brownsville and going to his house that was in what, you know, that was located in Liberty City. And 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 the thing is, he, uh, at one point he 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 did a traffic violation. And the police start chasing him, and from from uh, the police starting to chase him. By the time they caught up with him, they got out of the cars and started beating him up until he was, you know, they beat him up until he was unconscious. Took him to the to the to the um, hospital. Dies a few days later, and and the po- police officers did cough, try to cover up the story. And by the time you know when they finally arrested them, uh, uh, they they were acquitted and the riot broke out in Miami. That's pretty much the story. But what I did, I tried to um, understand, like, you know, who Arthur McDuffie was, like who he was as a man, you know, because a lot of time when, it's, when, um, when those stories happen, those riots happen and people focus so much on the riots, but not focusing on why did the riot happen, why those things are happening. And I feel like, you know, that's one of the biggest mistakes. Uh, when I've seen a lot of those stories, it's like they're focusing on the, on, on what happened, but not why, you know? And, uh, and, and, uh, and I wanted to focus on why it happened and, and, and the story of Mike Duffy. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can tell you um, a big takeaway for me was a lot of people focus on and, you know, they don't really understand the black experience. I had a brother um, that was viciously beat by two cops after a, an, an auto accident and they, they put him in a coma for four days. So um, I think a lot of people don't understand. They're seeing now um, a lot of the physical effects, but most black people know already uh, this experience and they either have had someone in their family or a friend or themselves uh, has been affected by this. And so we have a code, a certain code uh, amongst us uh, of uh, protectionism. In your film, uh, what I thought was very effective was the build of the story 
uh, of why uh, McDuffie was moving towards his home, even as the police were chasing him. I think it was very effective that, you know, the feeling was that he was trying to get home first to ensure his safety. And anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's missed by a lot of people. You know, um, we know in our community, we don't want to get, you know, caught in a situation where there's no, no one around. There's no public. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, I, like when I get pulled over by the police, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I do not. I do not pull over until I see a parking lot of a grocery store, or or uh, or you know a place that's well lit, and people kind of see me. And uh, I've been pulled pulled over by the police, but I know in my mind you do not pull over un, unless a place you know people are going to be there. That's something I've learned. You know, uh, in in my you know in. Uh, it might be something, you know, people say, hey, you should stop at that moment or something. But you, it, it's kind of a, how do you say that? Do you stop right away and, and, and just deal with it? Or do you risk, uh, you know, do you take the risk of going to a, in front of a grocery store or uh, a, a parking lot that's really well lit or somebody? It's, it's kind of a, and, and it's, it's, it's a thing when, you know, a lot of people, if you're not, you know, if, if you black, this is something you think about constantly. Well, a lot of people don't know. This is one of the things we have to think about, you know. Yeah. Um, it went, went, you know, um, it, and, 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 it, and this is something, you know, I keep saying people try to realize, like, you know, you being the other person for one minute, you know. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize um, <laughs> those little things as a black person you have to think about constantly you know yeah i mean it, yeah. It, it's it, it's kind of hard to um to put yourself in 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 uh the shoes of, of a black person unless you're born as a black person you know the sphere is always going to be through um your experiences and you know what you've learned in your life and yeah. you're going to have a different experience if you're born you know in, in into a situation um i did want to talk about your process and uh, bringing this documentary to life. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you started and how you went about building that story? Well, um, one thing I try to do, it's a, it's, it's a, how do you say that research? Uh, uh, I, I focus, I spent a good year, you know, focusing on my research. That, that I can say. As the, before everything else, I spent a good year focusing on the research, read the right, uh, you know, I read the, you know, make sure I read the right books, you know, uh, go back in some of the newspaper articles, go back to some of the archive, you know, get, you know, uh, uh, make sure I get, you know, the police reports and all of those things and, and get some of the court files, all of those things to be able to build the story. And, from all, some, a lot of those things is like, you know, you read into them, it's like, you, know, you find out, okay, that's my, my, that help my story, but it, it helped you put you in the right set of mind, you know, to know everything that was going on. And so we can be, um, so you can direct your story properly. So research is really important for a story like that, you know, um, 
And the other thing is it's, it's communicating with the people you're actually going to interview. And, and uh, that, that, that can be a challenge too, because one thing I find out a lot of people didn't want to talk about, it. they don't want to revisit that, that story. And, and in Miami, I, I can tell you, it's two group of people. The people that say, hey, um, uh, the riot happened. I don't want to talk about it. I still have a job in the city. I don't want to lose my job. That's literally stuff I've heard, you know. I don't want to lose my job because I still work for the county. Or I still work for the – because, like, you know, they don't want to get too political because they know they can get fired because it's, it's still a really political um, – thing in the in the in the in the county and and there are people like hey it's time to talk about it you know this you know because nobody's talking about liberty city you know now people are talking about liberty city not in the in the sense of you know of what's happening in the neighborhood like you know to uplift the people there it's just gentrification now kick the people that are here out and and built you know built it, it, you you see it happen. If you go to Liberty City now, it's all gentrification. It's not really talking about the the change in the neighborhood and the and the life of the people. I, I'm sorry to say that, but it's it's a it's a it needs to be said. It, it go to Liberty City. It's not about the people living there. Even when the investment is happening now, it's not toward the people living there. It's it, it's all gentrification. Who's gonna need, who's gonna win the new contract to build a new housing complex there? That's that's all that's happening there now. Wow, I mean that, that's a great point because you know I think sort of painting a picture for our listeners and some listeners who may not be from Miami to understand the context of the city now and versus that time. You know because uh, similar to I think what happened now with George Floyd, there Miami was building a powder keg almost of so much tension, you know, between the start of the cocaine cowboy era, you know, during that same spring, you had the Marielle boat lift, you know, and then you had the riots on top of that, that I think the city there was, you know, and I grew up in the eighties in Miami, I was very small, but you know, throughout the entire decade, I would hear about this particular incident. Even though as a kid, you know, your parents don't want, kind of want to shield you. They don't want to show you all the news, but it becomes part of almost the folklore of the city where everyone knows that name. Everybody knows. And like you said, there's almost like a feeling of the, those neighborhoods where it happened. Like, oh, don't go there if you don't have to. It's very dangerous. You know, I come from a working class family in Hialeah and they always say, no, no, be careful because, you know, so there's, it's almost like there's like a mystical thing that happens in the city after it happens. Uh, and, and so it, it's interesting that, you know, all these things kind of coalesced around the same time. And then when this one incident happened, just like what just happened in Minneapolis, it just sort of exploded all over the town, right? It, it exploded all over the town. And, and um, when, when, and, and today, you know, uh, like you said, the Marion boat lift was happening. Uh, the city was changing so much and, and so much you can, and the thing, the way I see Miami uh, as a city, though I always say there's a pre-McDuffie Miami and the post-McDuffie Miami because the, it become two different cities. Like, you know, it, uh, and after after the McDuffie riot happened, the city spent a, a lot of money reinventing the image of the city. You know, you have the Miami, you have become the the Miami Vice Miami before, and 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 there was a Miami before that, and. And, and and the thing about the Miami Vice Miami, I, I, that's how I, I, I want to say it today. And that's how, that image, 
that Im- in creating that image, there's a portion of Miami that I feel like really got ignored, really got taken out of that image of Miami. And, uh, and if, if you see a lot of people today that move in Miami, a lot of people that are moving in Miami uh, because our population is growing so much. The, one of the first things they, they are going to tell you, the perception they get of Miami on TV is completely different from when they moved here. I don't know if you heard that. It's something I've heard constantly because there's, there's been so much money in, in creating, because we depend so much on tourism. You know, it, it, it is true. Like our economy is based on tourism. So you have to make sure people want to come here. Uh, but it, 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 I feel like in the, in, in creating that image, um, we forget about a lot of the other people that actually live here, that reside here, that have like, you know, their day, their lives here. And, 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 and all those neighborhoods that are west of 95, if uh, around that, you know, 7th Avenue west of that corridor, I feel like it's a part of Miami. I feel that is, that is, neglected in so many ways that is not talk about that I don't like you know as a filmmaker as a storyteller I feel like uh, we need to we need to start to talk to talk about you know we need to you know we come from the city you need to start talking about that you know uh, you're gonna see film like uh, recently I saw um, bad boys <laughs> like Every single part of that film taken it took place in one little section of Miami. I'm like, I would like to see another background, another setting of Miami, you know. And 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 I feel like this is what's missing. And 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 in many ways, like when you look at um, some local film that have been done by local filmmakers in Miami, they start showing. I feel like those are voices we start hearing coming from Miami a lot. And. And I appreciate, you know, I really appreciate the local filmmakers here that are making film about Miami and are telling those stories. And 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 it's interesting. Uh, the the stories about about Miami are getting a lot of interest because those are stories that are beautiful stories to tell. Beautiful, uh, uh, you know, uh, that are impactful stories. People do not expect to get from Miami, and when they get them, and they feel really um what's the word i'm looking for um uh i'm surprised uh, not surprised uh um connected to they feel really connected to yeah oh you're right yeah there's definitely i mean when you have you know the big splash of you know barry jenkins and moonlight with the oscar all the way to you know keitha keisha uh ray witherspoon winning uh at the the uh biennale yeah berlin film festival you know, and you know, d- distinctively different films, but you know, distinctly, distinctively different black experiences exactly. and experiences of Miami. You know, you can understand. You know why those experiences connect. Yeah, and and and, and Miami. It's what's interesting about Miami. It's such a Caribbean city. And, but, you know, by Caribbean city, it's like you find every single language from the Caribbean here, from, from Spanish, English, Creole, French. Uh, it's such a diverse, you know, Dutch, you know, people from, uh, uh, it's such a diverse Caribbean city. And, and, and coming here, you find all those diverse sor- stories and, and, and coming, you know, it's interesting to see the different experience, different black experience coming from the Caribbean, the different Hispanic experience, you know, all of those coming here from Miami. 
me. It it will be. It's it's it, you know it's an interesting place to come and to actually tell stories because your story will can you as a as a story teller filmmakers here you are you are in this such a rich culture for you to to inspire you to tell stories too. Yeah, I did want to you know jump into. I mean, because there's so much to get at. So um, I want to jump back into the documentary and talk about your interviews. They were so in-depth and and comprehensive. I want to start off with, and, you know, this is diving deep into the water immediately, but I think it's important. Um, Your interview with the McDuffie family, the people that were affected, directly by McDuffie's death, you his know, murder. It, it's, this one thing I find it like, you know, this is the interesting thing to me doing the, first, they were um, really, it was really tough for them to, to be interviewed, extremely tough for them to be interviewed. Uh, and, and, and it's hard for them to actually uh, talk to it because they have to relive it. Every time they talk about it, they have to actually relive it. And, what what the sad part is the family i've been dealing with this for 40 years and a lot of time when we hear those stories you know happening about uh um black people getting hit you know killed by the police getting you know constantly but we don't follow what happened throughout the years what i've seen in the, with 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 the mcduffie family is how this this affected them for the past 40 years. You know, this is one of the things for, for 40 years of them living through this. And you know, when when you look at like, you know, Trevor Martin, Marco Brown and 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 um and uh and and and, and recently I'm I'm all I'm all I'm thinking about is how those families gonna be dealing with to, uh, to you know in the next 40 years because the story is over for for uh, for a lot of people, but um, for forty years they have to deal with it. And another thing that happened too, that's another thing I think a lot of white people in America doesn't understand. The story might end in the newspaper for them, but black families and black people have to go deal with this every single day, uh, you know, because it it, it it lives a mental trauma and you have to deal with, you have to go through this constantly. And I feel that's why, you know, when those things, it's the story does, it doesn't end after the trial. It doesn't, it keeps going because you, you keep watching it on TV, your friend keep up, you know, all the time you go to friends, you know, you're having a, 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 a party or dinner, somebody will tell you, you know, out of the blue, somebody will tell you a story how they were stopped by the police, and it become conversation. It's conversation we have constantly, you know. Yeah. Was it tough to do that interview? Because um, I, 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 I saw the family after the screening, and there were tears then, and, and they, I'm sure they already saw the movie, you know. Yeah, they saw the movie before actually it premiered because I wanted them to be one thing that. Um, they, when they were making, you know, I was making the documentary, one thing they say, um, 
uh, people keep making documentaries about McDuffie and call them. Nothing happened, and they keep making documentaries. All they talk about is the riot. You know, is it? They, they ask me that question. Is it going to be about him? I'm like, that's one thing I'll assure you. It's going to be about him. So I make sure the film is about them, about him and the in the family. So when I was done with the film, I I drove to uh, Richmond Hill with. Um, with in Georgia, that's where the family in Boswick, where Ahmad uh, uh, just recently got killed, uh, and that's where the family lives now. And, oh wow! And, yeah, wow. Uh, so uh, actually, McDuffie's mother moved out of Miami because it couldn't take it anymore. Moved back, you know, that's McDuffie's hometown. Go back to McDuffie's hometown, um, uh, and. And I drove back there and actually sat down with them and watched the movie. And it was tough for them to watch because I didn't, I wanted them to see the film before everybody else did. So the, and was it, there was an interview. How, how, how difficult was it to do the interview? I, I remember how long it took you. The interview, uh, you did that interview. You, you, you had already done a lot of the documentary before you actually uh, yeah, it, got it, it that was, interview. Yeah, it took me a year to get the family's interview uh, because it was, I wanted, I, I had a lot of interview done. I, I interviewed almost 30 people uh, for the documentary, but I'm like, no, I want the family to be in the documentary. That's, that was my, my focus. That's was it tough as you were doing the documentary to find feel the, the, to, to feel the, did you, the emotion while you were uh, interviewing? Yes, the it, it was, it was, um, the thing is, when you're filming, not only filming it, editing it, you know, when you're filming the filming it and, and the emotions start coming out, it's hard yourself to keep your own composure, you know, and 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 uh, and, and watching, you know, you watch, you know, you 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 when you're filming and you're doing the interview, you, you can see the pain slowly, slowly build up before the tear actually come out. And it was tough, tough, tough to watch, and it was tough to do. And even when I'm editing, like going back later on, I'm sitting down going to those interviews and editing those interviews. It's even it's tough, you know, to to do that and go into that. Can you talk a little bit about the relation between when Liberty burns and uh, the moment that we're in now? I mean, who, this, is, this is crazy that, you know, they moved from Miami back to Virginia and it has to resurface all over again for them that they moved back to the same place that Mr. Arbery was oh, yeah. Boswick, Georgia. Moved back to Boswick, Georgia and the same thing, you know, uh, uh, and Arbery, you know, Amon Aubrey actually, you know, was chased by, literally chased by two trucks. And, and it, it's, it's, it, man. Yeah. So can you All talk right. a little bit about the relation, the relationship? But it's, it, yeah, it, just it, doing it, the documentary and then, you know, the documentary uh, coming out at a moment that this turmoil uh, boils across the nation. You know, it, 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 it's interesting. It's the same story that's being repeated. It, it's it's the does the idea you know of you know you know that all Black Lives Matter is saying. It's like 
you know, you're treating us like, you know, like we, we don't, we don't count. Our life does not count. And, and you keep having those stories of, um, violence against black people and against black bodies and nobody's getting uh, accountable. You know, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's like, that's what the, you have to have a video, you know, video. why do we need an actual video and, and, and to, to make sure, um, an investigation to start, not even, not even to actually, to make an arrest to, for the investigation to actually start, you know, it, it's, it's, and I'm not going to say, you know, the video or uh, anything about the, uh, you know, how the actual, uh, you know, arrest, why the arrest was in me. We need the video for the actual investigation to actual, actually start. That's, you know, that, <laughs> it, 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 that to me, it's not, it, it's that, that tell me you don't put into account not only the testimony, the testimony and the eyewitnesses that are black, you're not hearing their voices that, you know, and, and, um, and, and it, 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 there's so many, uh, layers that come into this to say, you know, hey, this is how much I have to do for the even for the investigation to even start. You know, it's not even making the arrest. It's like if if the investigation happened and they did not make the arrest in the video for something else, it's like the investigation doesn't even start until they see the video. Uh, it, that, and even if they have many witnesses, it and and there's so many stories like that that they had no videos, but people saw it. People can, you know, can, can, can contest, say, yes, this is what I saw, this is what happened. And it can be many people saying the same thing. It can be like four or five people saying the same thing, but none of them will, you know, not even an investigation will start. You know, but the yeah. videos is what's starting the actual investigation. That This is, this is you know, what... I think it bothers me the most, you know? Yeah. I mean, in, in, in McDuffie's case, there was no video, you know, and they there had was to, no video. yeah, you know, they had to, to recreate. You know, the, 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 what's interesting about McDuffie's case is, and, and some officers actually come forward, you know, one, you know, one officer actually quit the force when he, when he saw what he saw. Um, it, it's, it's just, you know, that, that idea, you know, what I feel like, you know, what happened in McDuffie's case, a lot of, it, it was one, one, one officer actually came forward. It was that one officer that quit came forward. And, and to me, uh, that that says a lot about the officer, you know. And it, it wasn't the only thing that started the investigation, but that one officer's account makes sure a, a lot of other, you know, contradict a lot of other officers' lives, you know. Um, and this doesn't happen often for one officer to stand up when they actually see the bad thing happen. Yeah. Um they were acquitted you know those officers were acquitted and that's really what started the riots and i think a lot of people are waiting with bated breath um to see what's going to happen in this case because there have been you know so many times that you know this has happened and you know, the officers get off 
So uh, I am waiting, you know, to see exactly what's going to happen, you know, as these cases wind through the courts. Uh, has anyone uh, been in touch with you, you know, that knows that you've done this film in relation to the times that are happening now? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I've I've been, you know, I've been in contact with, you know, some some journalists has called me and, you know, been talking to a few few journalists and 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 um, few uh, activists. And one thing I was going to say, you know, the Miami Film Festival, you know, we, we're thinking about doing the screening of the of the film. Not thinking, we're doing the screening. Yeah, yeah, I saw, um, yeah, I saw yesterday that uh, you guys are having that screening. Yes, yes. No, no, please, you know, um, you know, share with friends, make sure, you know, it happens and then and, and we're gonna, um, uh, yeah. I was going to wait until the end of the interview, you know, I have another, you know, question or two, but uh, since we're already there, uh, when is the screening, and how and how does the screening work? Uh, well, it's how, uh, how can how can people watch the film? Well, it's it's gonna be on the uh, it's gonna be uh, available to stream for one day day on the Miami Film Festival channel. Uh, and the tickets are gonna go on sale really soon. I think well, probably a week or two from now, a week from now because the screening is in two weeks. A week or so from now. What's the date of the screening? Juneteenth, uh, which is June nineteenth, uh, it's gonna it's gonna be available from from midnight that day from to midnight the next day. Yeah, so people can go to MiamiFilmFestival.com? Yeah. Yes, yeah. MiamiFilmFestival.com, and they can find out more. And yeah, for this this powerful film. So uh, for me, another big question, and this is you know having to do with what we talked about uh, in terms of film festivals. Film festivals are you know a big way for filmmakers to get the word out about their film, to connect with distributors, to financiers, other filmmakers, obviously. And, you know, it's one of the uh, the most important ways, actually, for independent filmmakers. You uh, debuted When Liberty Burns at the Miami Film Festival, which a lot of people are saying, you know, is the last physical film festival to happen before the pandemic how has your dynamics uh changed in terms of the rollout of the film how you were planning on getting the word out about the film in this time because it had everything is turned on its head and not just for independent filmmakers you know um billion dollar companies are grappling with uh these issues so can well, you talk a little bit about that it's been tough because you know like you said film you know filmmakers we have to deal a lot you know a lot of our you know when we make films when you independent filmmakers especially what you do you try to go to festivals and shop your, your film you know all around the festival uh, to see how the Miami Film Festival stopped, right, you know, and, and all the festivals we plan to go to, we, you know, all those festivals get postponed. And and now we we are just sitting around and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, exactly what to do and, and how to get, because I want people to see the, the documentary and, and that's my goal. I want as many people to watch it. And, and what... One other thing about the what I talked about in the document, um, I try to talk about, um, it's kind of why those riots happen. That's one of the main thing I try to talk about in the documentary, and that's one of the thing I 
I tried to figure, you know, try to say, you know, and, 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 and focus on, you know, some of the stuff that happened after those riots, you know, and, and, and I wanted people to see it, you know, as many people to see it as possible in a way. Um, I feel like, the riots always happen because people are not listening. And, 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 and when you look at the news today, all people are f- focusing on, I'm not going to say riots, you know, protests, you know, because this is the one word to use. Um, uh, and, you know, it's not, it's not a riot. It's a protest right now. I feel like, you know, it's a rebellion It's a protest. It's people saying enough. And, uh, and, and, and those things always happen because people are not listening. And, and, and when people, when 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 right now all that they're focusing on is the protest and you know and not listening of why it's happening and you know, if you're focusing on that you always already already miss the point you already miss the point if you're focusing on why it's happening you know, um, when it's happening and not why it's happening you already miss the point and 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 you're looking at it in the news today, and 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 I feel like the conversation is still not, you know, why it's happening. Because if the conversation becomes why it's happening, it's happening. People can change those policies. And still, right now, I feel like a lot of people are just talking. But I, ha- you know, I, we have a lot of elected officials, but no policies. I haven't seen any policies yet. Yeah, I mean, this this has happened, you know, with gun control. This has happened with many issues. And I I agree with you. Um, I think people have, or some people have lost sight of, you know, the protest focusing on, you know, just one specific issue. It could be, you know, Mr. Mr. Floyd. Uh, Certainly, there was a run up to that. Mr. Arbery, um, um, the the Brianna incident. There's been many incidents that have led up to this happening. I can imagine, I mean, even, you know, for someone like me, you know, you see Mr. Arbery just hunted down by private citizens. And then you see, you know, what's supposed to be a recourse, the law, um, you know, killing another black man. So it kind of puts you in a situation where, you know, you're, you don't have anywhere, anywhere to go. So what are you going to do? You know, you know, uh, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, like, you know, this is the thing about the conversation. You have a, um, he, you know, it, it reminds me so much of Trayvon. Yes. It reminds me so much of Trayvon. Yes. You have somebody chasing you, stalking you, you, like a predator behind you, and they expect you to be nice when that, pre- I, I've never seen a predator approach a prey and the prey is like nice to the predator. I've right. never heard that before. And and they're hunting you like the predators really hunting you. And they expect you to be nice when they approach you. What I'm gonna like to know where exactly that makes sense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it reminds me so much. Right. I get emotional when I hear those stories. You know, I try, you know, it, 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 it's it, 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 I I Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. You know, as more news comes out, you know about about um, Mr. Arbery and that situation. You know, we we see exactly how you know predatory that you know that that was. Um, And I think you know your film is as important a film in in these times as it was when you know it debuted at the Miami Film Festival. 
So we certainly are looking forward to this screening on uh, the 19th. Uh, we certainly are going to encourage our listeners to go to MiamiFilmFestival.com and to get their tickets to the online screening. We'll put it on uh, our website, on the front of our website, so people can get the direct link at ScreenHeatMiami.com. Um, I know, JL, you had a film you know, at the same time during the Miami Film Festival that dealt with mental health issues. Right. And, that, and, and, and that's something I think is, you know, one of the most important uh, takeaways from this. Because as we start to wind down, which always happens from these types of incidents, that mental health component is one of the most components to deal with this. You know, there's PTSD that comes along with it. Yeah. There are many, many layers that go along with uh, uh, dealing with these types of situations. So, right. JL, can you speak a little bit on, um, you know, the mental health aspect and, um, you know, dealing with that? Yeah, no, I'll look, obviously, I, and I was the producer, to be fair, J.R. Poli directed it, uh, and we were in the, the oh, same I did, competition. I said, I, yeah, the, I did right. say your film, because you, right. your producer's <laughs> your film, too. So. I, yeah, but I've been with it since the beginning. It started actually as a short film uh, that J.R. wrote, and, and I jumped on board as a producer. This is back in 2017. And then, uh, essentially, what happened was, you know, we had such a great run that ended with the Miami Film Festival's 36th edition that we just literally jumped right into the feature and we were able to premiere it by the next year. But yeah, the whole idea of, of the theme of the film, which is mental health, I think is very uh, sort of appropriate for the moment because it goes back to what I was saying before. You know, we're living in a particular environment now with the COVID, you know, with all these other situations that just were thrown at us all of a sudden, you know, where again, it creates this sort of powder keg and, and there are very few outlets, you know, for people, you know, to kind of express themselves, even though we have all this, these great digital toys to communicate with nowadays and, and kind of makes us feel connected. I still feel that there is an isolation. I, I still feel like, you know, not enough of a specifically minority communities have enough of an outlet. And then there's also the stigma and you've mentioned it before, Kevin, about talking about mental health within minority communities. It's seen almost as like a weakness sometimes. And so we're trying to get over that stigma, you know, obviously still very powerful racial tensions in this country. And so, I think trying to find creative ways of having healthy conversations uh, uh, around these topics. And I believe that our art form of film and media and what we do and telling these stories like, you know, the great job that Dudley did with his film is ways to start this conversation in a healthy way and, and using the past to talk about the present because history does repeat itself, unfortunately. Uh, I think that these are all amazing tools. And, and one good thing that has come out of this whole situation is that a lot of these events have gone virtual. So, you know, I think now, particularly with Miami Film Festival's great idea of doing these Juneteenth screening, uh, you know, more people can have access to this film and talk about, you know, uh, the issues behind it. And I think that's very healthy mentally as well. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I also want to ask Dudley, you know, even beyond the Miami Film Festival, have you been talking to distributors? Do you, you know, where do you kind of see the film living after the Miami Film Festival? Well, I've, uh, I've been talking to a few distributors and, and, and that's been the challenge for me right now is actually find a, find a, find a, you know, a distributor like, you know, really that one, um, 
take the take on the film and 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 help it move forward you know my goal is to actually i want to distribute it like you know that can get as many people as possible to see the film it's um uh you know i wish people saw the film before all this thing happened because um well let's just say you know it would have happened anyway because i think people will still you know will still not listening i just hope the film do a little bit of uh help people understand why riot, those those riots and not not riot those protests happen and those you know those things constantly take place and it's been uh it's been how many how many centuries we talk we're not talking about years since those things that happened been happening we have talking you know, we are talking about how many centuries those things that happening so yeah, so for me, there's two. There's also two connectors, because JL, you know, your film, the lead is a black man, you know. So uh, you guys do delve into, you know, some of the issues that black men grapple with in that particular film and other issues. But um, the second part that uh, that I wanted to touch on is uh, Dudley, your interview with Doctor Dunn who's one of the foremost historians, Miami historians, and also a doctor of psychology. He headed the FIU psychology program for many, many years. So uh, the layers that you have in your film, Dudley, and the layers that you have in your film, it is, you know, JR is the director, as you mentioned, but it is your film you know, JL, because certainly, you know, that kind of walked that process with you as you, you know, put that together. But the layers that both of you had in your film in terms of dealing with these types of issues really hits, hits the issues home, the internal part of it. That's really where you need to get at is this internal part of it. People are feeling the surface. They're feeling the effects, but they're not necessarily diving into what has caused these issues to happen, whether, you know, it's dealing with the mental health part of it or dealing with, you know, the physical manifestations, the physical repercussions that happen. So, you know, for both of you, you know, what do you feel are ways that we can utilize this momentum to, really get at these issues to tackle these issues say the question again what are ways that you feel that we can really deal substantive ways that we can utilize to deal with these issues well to me it's always like policies you know uh, uh what policy that's going to be you know you know they're going to bring forward to actually deal with those issues and and it's not we all know those issues are there. We all seen um, how you know police brutality and and you know how you know how the police uh, respond to black and, and and brown communities. It's like we all see them. We all know the policies. They get, for example, you know who gets suspended with pay. That that's a question. That's something I don't. I, I really never get. It's like you know. Who gets suspended with pay? I would let. I would like to. You know, that's a vacation. You know, so for doing some for make doing um, 
something, you know, that was a word, you know, that's inappropriate. You know, that those are like small things I'm telling and I'm saying it's like uh, the way they, they police policing themselves. You know, there's like small police policing themselves. Um, um, how you fund the police department, how, you know, how, what exactly is community policing? You know, why, why you know, why uh, every single thing that happened, uh, how's the police connected to the different department? How's the police connected to the health department? How's the, I'm not saying police, you know, if something happened um, as a mental health issue, why you have the police taking care of a mental health issue? Why the police doesn't have, you know, the police should know, should know how to contact somebody from the health department to deal with somebody that have mental health issue. You know, if somebody have a broken window, you know, why is the police that's arresting somebody with a broken window? Why they don't have somebody that deal with uh, city ordinance come in and give the person a ticket to, to take care of that? There's like so many things that put the police in charge. They should not be in charge, you know? It, 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 there's so many different policies that can bring, they can bring forward to deal with policing and they're not bringing forward. You know, uh, it, 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 the police, I feel like there's so many other department, like, you know, um, civil issues, civil thing that's happening in a community, the police is taking care of, they have, it's not dumb. They should, I, I'm not saying the police, you know, you cannot call 911 they show up, but when the issues show up, like, you know, the police should know this is not a police issue, police matter. Let me call the right department for you. That doesn't happen. And so the police show up, they don't know how to deal with different issue. Before you know it, they didn't, they don't de-escalate the thing and, uh, and become a bigger problem than actually supposed to be. Yeah, procedures and a more yeah. comprehensive uh, look at the situations. You know, what, what does that actually, what, what is policing, you know? There's so many different things. And, I, and another thing I, I, uh, I feel like, too, it's like so much about, uh, of race and, and it's, it's part of that American identity. And 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 uh, so much about race and racism is part of the American identity. It's like I feel like you know, Americans have to sit down and define exactly you know, you know, we, you know, look at within that the, you know who they are and see you know how they want to redefine themselves and how they actually want to deal with that issue of racism. You know, it, it's policy to me. It's policy. Yes, po- policy. Yeah. yeah, and I know that makes. Sorry. <clears throat> no, I was just going to uh, kind of piggyback on, on the part of that uh, in terms of policy. And, and it makes a lot of sense, uh, you know, in terms of addressing sort of the systematic issues and how these things are approached. You know, uh, we, we deal in a small way in, the, in Marcus with the idea that, you know, mental health isn't normally covered by insurance companies. And so, you know, there's, there's policy on the health side as well. Uh, you know, obviously this wasn't intended as I have to, I, you know, I don't, as a black film, but only because Owen Miller, who's our lead actor, such a brilliant talent, and, but he did bring a lot of his own personal experience into the role, uh, which is something that JR picked on right away. And so through that, his expression as an actor was able to bring a lot of those issues from that community into the forefront. And so I think that what we're dealing with in terms of policy, and you're right, you know, I think that things have to be handled in terms of, you know, how do we train the police to, de- like you mentioned, de 
de-escalating. Uh, I believe that a lot of these things happen. There, there are a lot of anger issues. There are a lot of issues of fear on both sides. And, you know, that's not something that you can solve with a bat or a gun. You know, that's something that has to be solved with, you know, with psychology, with therapy, you know, understanding why are these police so aggressive towards this community, you know, and it goes back generations, you know, and, and until, like you said, we deal with the internal problems of what's happening in our society on both sides, you know, I believe that unfortunately these clashes are going to continue to happen, you know, because they're looking for some kind of an outlet or something to their aggression, to their anger, to their fear, you know, so much of which, you know, doesn't make sense in our modern society anymore, yet they continue to happen, you know, almost on a, on a regular pattern. And it's, it's sad. And so I think that, you know, if, if the policymakers can sit down and say, okay, let's really dive into the, the mental health reasons as to why these things may be happening and continue to happen almost like I said in a repeated pattern uh, then I think that we can make some kind of headway in terms of creating a healthy relationship between the community and the law enforcement that's sworn to protect that community and so that's that's I want to say something I don't want to say that you know those things are happening because of mental health you know right issues you know because you know i don't want people to get the idea you know those no but you know the psychology you know at at the end of the day it's 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 the psychology yeah yeah right it's one element of it it's one element that has of of many many issues that goes back you know generations in this country no because you know i don't know uh because so much of it like you know uh of 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 what's happening is it it it's it's like stuff that are inflicted on, upon you, and you reacting to what's happening yes. to you, you know. And uh, and 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 to me, like you know, the reaction, uh, you know, you you cannot keep doing those things to somebody and not expecting them to react, you know. Yeah. It, it, it will be unhealthy not to react in many ways, right. you know. So uh, we, you know, like you know, we we have to sit down and have that conversation and come up with the right policies to be dealing with those issues. And, 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 and right now I can, I can tell people a lot of those things start locally, you know, how your local, how your local mayor deal with the police department. And this is, this is something you see all the time. Local mayor are scared of saying, you know, of going against the police department of, and they will tell them you, you are soft on crime. And, and and that idea of like you know mayor challenging police department and saying they're soft on crime that idea need to change. It's like if a mayor is coming and it, the mayor should be able to, you know, be, it should be able to challenge every single department, you know, in their in their city. Why the police force in one one of the department they cannot challenge as soon as they do. It's like they're soft on crime and. And and you have the police unions and you know completely going against the the mayor. These things needs to stop. And those those are like little things you you have to look at. And 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 locally when you when you're going to vote, see what policies your mayor is gonna bring toward the police department. What your city councilman or gonna bring toward the the police department that you know not just the police department how they're gonna challenge the system that's allowing this to happen you know if you know it, it's not it's not a weak position to challenge those systems we have to make sure 
the mayor is comfortable knowing if they challenge those system, they can get, you know, you know, they can get the people's backing. Yeah. Um, that's a lot. <laughs> um, certainly uh, doing this interview at this time, we had this, this interview was a long time coming anyway. Um, so doing the interview at this time uh, certainly is, uh, I think, appropriate. But you are a filmmaker. So um, getting back to filmmaking to kind of round this out, um, I know that uh, now, now we're connecting on a project together, and I'm really happy to be back together again working on a project, uh, good, good, good. Mr. Alexis. Um, but, um, you know, aside from that project, do you, are you eyeing any other projects uh, moving into the future? Well, uh, there's a few projects I'm thinking of, you know, I'm working on, and uh, seeing them, you know, like uh, the project we're working on, and, you know, hope soon we can get this out. Uh, and and other project that I've been I've been I've been working on for the past year or so, um, trying to move them forward. And and I'm gonna say, quarantine put us behind months. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. One of um, one of the project is was you know to visit an event like you know an annual event that was, that's canceled this year. So we have to wait another year hmm. to see yeah. where the project is gonna go. So it's like ah. Uh, you know, this is this is this is what we you know. Uh, but let me not complain, you know, because a lot of people in this at this moment is going to much. You know, it's not complaining. I'm, I feel lucky right now mm-hmm. uh, because you know uh, uh, during this whole you know situation with the COVID, you know, my family's healthy and uh, and everything. But um, let's yes you know as a filmmaker you just got to move forward and you know try to find the next story to tell and and that's it yeah well you certainly are an important filmmaker with an important film a film that needs to be seen so you know we're going to do our part to uh you know try to get the film out to the biggest and widest audience in the world um can you give us the information about the miami film festival one more time, just to make sure that everybody can connect on that. Well, the the we're gonna have on Juneteenth. We're gonna have a, a Juneteenth is what day? June nineteenth. Mm-hmm. We're gonna on June nineteenth. We're gonna have like a, 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 a on online screening with the Miami Film Festival, and uh, uh, and it's it's gonna be available for twenty four hours. You'll be able to stream it and and purchase. You know. And tickets are gonna be available soon, and I hope you know, you know, everybody stop by and, and come and check check it out. And we and, and the following day we're gonna have a, a panel discussion, and we're working on the panel now to make sure it's an interesting panel, and we can actually have the conversation around um, around like you know the what's happening now and 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 the and the film and the making of the film. What's That's the awesome. website? What's the website for the documentary? Uh, 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 LibertyBurns.com. That's the website for the documentary. Uh, or you can you can actually go to um, you can uh, follow, follow us on, uh, on Instagram and 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 and, uh, and Twitter. But you know, f- to get the tickets, you can go to the MiamiFilmFestival.com and you can click on the link there about the about the the screening, and you can definitely stop by and, and, and tickets are gonna go. On sale soon. 
That's awesome. great. Good. So, so Kevin, what, we have to end with our two parter, man. That's like the tradition. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, we were in a little bit of a hiatus, <laughs> so right. it's still a little bit rusty, but, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, JL, I'm going to let you take the first part of this. All right. So it's a two part question. And the, the first part is, is kind of like the movie back to the future, right? So if you could go back in time and speak to a younger version of yourself, when you were just a kid coming up, what advice would you give yourself back then knowing what you know now? Uh, I don't know. That's a tough question to ask, actually. If I could go that's back. Why we lay, that's why we save it for last. <laughs> you know, if I could go back to the, to the, if I could go back, you know, get into the DeLorean, you know, go back to the, you know, go back in the past, travel, you know, uh, the one thing I will tell myself, it's, it's, it's to be more open. That's the one thing, you know, I, I like to be open, you know, to things. Be, be, that's, that's my whole philosophy on thing. Be open to learn, be open to see something new. Um, no, I always say, you know, always know when you walk in the room, you're pretty dumb, you know, know what's in the room, you know, learn what's in the room, you know, be open to know what's in the room. So that's that's my thing. That's what I will say. I was I'm gonna say they're pretty dumb, pretty ignorant, uh, ignorant of what's in the room. But talk and be open. What's you know about what's in the room? And the second part of that question goes hand in hand. Uh, what advice would you give to filmmakers, both up and coming, and you know your peers, filmmakers that? you know, are trying to connect on an in-depth uh, in-depth piece like uh, When Liberty Burns? One thing I was, I'm going to tell filmmakers, uh, just do it. You know, don't wait for the funding to come in. Don't, like, that's another thing, I, you know, I hear filmmakers do all the time. Oh, I don't have the funding to do the film. Do not wait for the funding to do your film. Do not, I'm not going to say to make a horrible film because you don't have the funding. Work with what you have. Learn to work with what you have. That's something I'm going to tell to a lot of the filmmakers. Learn to work with what you have. You don't need a big budget to tell a story. Learn to work with what you have. And that's something I've done because a lot of the stories that I've, I've done are stories like, you know, now that, that have difficult getting funding. If I don't, you know, self-fund them myself and some really great champion, great backing from some really great people that like want some of my work, it would not have been done. Just make sure, you know, um, you know, I, like, you know, I got to give a shout out to the Green Family Foundation that always support me, but make sure uh, you get, you know, you do it, you do it. Do not wait for that funding, just get and do it, you know, and, 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 you, you, yeah, that's all I'll say. I'll say, just do it. Don't wait for the funding. Just get up, do it, fund it yourself. Tell those story. learn to work with what you have. If you have a cell phone, work with the cell phone. If you have a, if you have like a $50,000 camera, work with the $50,000 camera. Do not wait for it, you know, and just do it. Yeah, that's, that, that's a big difference, cell phone to $50,000 camera. Exactly. Sean Baker, like, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, we, we interviewed Kevin Chinoy. And you yeah. all can, our listeners can go back and listen to that uh, podcast you know, you know, several, we, several we have, podcasts we have, ago. We have great, uh, film producer. Have great film on cell phone, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the producer of Tangerine. Saying, uh-huh. Yeah, what I'm saying, it's like, do not, you know, do not be afraid to, you, know, you don't need the $50,000 camera to tell a great story. Just mm-hmm. learn to know, what, to learn to work with what you have. Yeah, yeah. I, I can say, um, and big shout out to, to Kimberly Green, as you said, she's a big champion for filmmakers. But um, I, I can say, I remember when you started this film and, you know, you told me that you were going to start the film. I knew that you didn't have the funding per se to start to start it, but you did it. I, I, I'm sure the impetus was, of course, you, you, with your friend and, you know, you were so despondent about that. But, uh, you know, you just did it. And I know that you were many, many interviews in before you know, you got any hand extended to you. So I can attest to that advice, you know, yeah. for, you know, from my relationship with you. And I can attest to that advice even from myself. So that is tremendous, tremendous uh, advice. Just do Read. it. Just do it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Duddy Alexis sponsored by Nike. No, <laughs> um, but Dudley, this has been such, a great journey and thank you so much for sharing your time and your experiences with us and we wish you so much luck with your film we have to tune in to juneteenth (laughs) you learn something new that's uh, (laughs) a very much of the culture of end of slavery so it it still be a national holiday there you go national holiday you know make sure you know it's a day you take off you know mlk day and juneteenth i don't go to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're all going to take go. off Juneteenth and watch when Liberty burns <laughs> alright so, alright Dudley thank you okay, so much thanks a lot man alright we'll be back on the other side you too <laughs> wow what an interview huh that was something went deep it cut deep oh yeah it did yeah yeah um, as, I, as I mentioned in the interview you know I've worked with Dudley for many years you know as an editor he's edited one of my documentaries um, he's multi-talented so he uh, has done websites for me graphics I mean he's an all-around and and also you know uh, you all can't see this but when we interviewed him some of his art was in the background so he's a pretty accomplished artist as well visual artist as well so wow. You know, this is this is uh, one to be reckoned with, and definitely a name to remember, Dudley Alexis, and mm-hmm. certainly, you know, coming up on Juneteenth, June nineteenth, you'll want to log in and watch when Liberty Burns his film. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely going to be worth the watch on that day. And I believe that uh, Jay LaPlante, the director of the festival, mentioned that I think around four o'clock, they're going to do some kind of a Facebook live panel with Dudley as well. Uh, so there'll be a lot of a lot of his content coming out next week uh, or this coming week here, you know, when we drop this podcast as well. Uh, so, yeah, I think everyone is going to get a kick out of seeing his work and and just kind of hearing his perspective uh, even more so, you know, than the interview that we just had. So, you know, and congrats to you, Kevin, and all your of the things that you've done with Dudley as well. So it's so much going on that very, very exciting and all over the world, right? You yeah. know, cause uh, even way, way down under in New Zealand, you know, we have uh, so much going on, right? In the, the first country that's been declared COVID free, right? Yeah, yeah, they, and we've been watching, we've been tracking that, you know, to see exactly what was gonna happen. But, you know, they really didn't necessarily have to shut down the same way as other countries in terms of production. 
you know, they've been uh, still shooting things. There were a couple of huge productions going on before this coronavirus uh, situation happened. Avatar uh, was right. shooting, which is, you know, into the hundreds of millions because they're shooting um, a couple of them at the same time. From what mm -hmm. I understand, uh, Peter Jackson was also shooting. So right. you can imagine, you know, you have James Cameron, two juggernauts shooting at the same time, James Cameron and Peter Jackson. Uh, there was a lot going on and, you know, in conjunction with other productions that were shooting, but another production, uh, even while the, the pandemic was happening around the world, uh, wrapped, I, I believe, before everyone else opened up, before America opened up. Um, the film Children of the Corn. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, th those uh, other two projects in New Zealand, but then, you know, just very close by in Australia, Children of the Corn was able to, as you mentioned, shoot right through the pandemic uh, and wrap their production, you know. And so, you know, they've got something very precious right now, which is, you know, a, a film in the can <laughs> that they can kind of uh, move forward with. And so it's, you know, it's good for them that they were able to figure out a way to do that. Uh, and, you know, I think all eyes in the industry are watching, you know, those productions and seeing how they did it. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to follow suit and get through a lot of these productions, you know, in a way that's safe and, and folks can get back to work. Yeah. New Zealand and Australia, from what I understand, they have, um, you know, a um, open visa system between the two of the, those countries because, that, because of the way that they handled the, the pandemic. So oh, wow. if you're from New Zealand, you can go to Australia. If you're from Australia, you can go to New Zealand. So, I mean, it, it, that's, you know, amazing if you're just, you know, not, not in our industry, you know, but for mm. our, our industry, you can imagine, you know, right. just the ability yeah. to shoot is, is uh, it's something that's, yeah, it's yeah, unique. Um, like I said, we're going to have to see what happens in LA, we did yeah. mention, you know, the content void and, you know, the need for more. We talked about this last week, you know, how relevant the industry is, how important the industry is above and beyond, you know, entertainment may be a misnomer. I think it's, you know, a necessary, uh, um, you know, it, as necessary as any industry, because you think psychologically people need that break they need that ability to uh you know get away so mm. you know this content void you know after everyone has watched everything on all the streamers and all the networks um to fill that content void i think is going to be you know even more valuable you see in terms of value you know netflix their um their stock you know it's risen 35%, you know, and it goes back and forth between 30 and 40% in terms of, you know, the value of the company, one of the highest valuated companies in the world. So, you know, mm -hmm. that does show you um, how valuable entertainment the industry is and how valuable, you know, this, this, this whole content thing is. But oh, yeah. in terms of shooting, uh, we were on a Zoom call, I believe last week, and they were speaking about, um, you know, ensuring these productions and whether right. insurance is going to be available. And they spoke on um, one of the only writers at the time, uh, $150,000, 
writer. And that's just, you know, basically coverage for, you know, some of the celebrities, some of your A-list stars, you know, that you would have on a production. That's not even talking about, you know, the bigger range of insurance products that are going to be necessary to shoot. So um, I'm not absolutely sure if, you know, they've been able to come up with a solution for that yet. So I'm wondering, you know, in terms of, you know, that opening up, uh, what's going to happen there? I'm waiting with bated breath. Right. And I think a lot of folks are, and, you know, we had uh, our own Carol Bressy. She's a local a insurance broker for the industry, but she works with, uh, I believe it's Hub International. And it's one of the biggest en entertainment insurance companies in the country. And she said that, yeah, they are actively insuring that, you know, that, and obviously there, there are going to be significant carve outs for things like pandemics and who knows if they have to add something in terms of the protests and the riots in case something gets shut down to that. But what she made it seem like is that, you know, and hopefully this will be a limited time thing where, you know, eventually as things feel safer, when there's a vaccine, you know, when folks are working and, and they don't have as many issues as they anticipated that those costs will go down again, uh, sort of very similar to like right after 9-11 when, you know, uh, nobody wanted to cover terrorist acts or, you know, God forbid, something like that happening again. And so for a while, that became an issue in the insurance world. But, you know, they got through it. I think we're going to get through this issue as well. Um, and yeah, for a while, there, there, there are going to be some high premiums for, you know, anything related to the pandemic or to COVID, especially when you're involving celebrities. But then again, you know, if you're already making a multi-million dollar investment in a Tom Hanks or a Tom Cruise or any of the famous Toms, uh, you know, who cares, you know, you're going to pay that extra 150k. And, and that's yeah. just, you know, a, an important safety measure, you know, to protect uh, a multi-million dollar investment. Yeah, these films into the hundreds of millions of dollars, oftentimes. Exactly. But there have been some bright spots. There have been oh, some yeah. bright spots. I mean, the animation industry, they're calling it the golden age of animation. You know, um, that's certainly... Uh, a segment, a sector of the industry that can be done, you know, in, anywhere around the world. And oh, yeah. With my, with my company, you know, we've done, uh, you know, voiceovers for projects, uh, studios connected in many places from London to, of course, California to Jamaica to the list goes on and on. And, you know, we work with animators you know, in, from India, from China, um, South Africa, and, and the list goes on and on. It's all about bringing those pieces together. So animation is something that is happening now. And I, oh, I, absolutely. I, I think that that's really um, important because that content um, will be able to fill the void, but also animation allows for a different type of storytelling. And so oh, yeah. the animation industry in places like Japan have always been, you know, open and available for all ages. Adults uh, consume animation as readily as they consume live action production. And the storytelling is dense in their animation, um, in their animation sec sector. So a lot of that now uh, is being transported over. There was just an mm -hmm. article in Variety that came out, I believe it was uh, yesterday, that spoke on you know this boom in animation and not just animation, a boom in more adult-centered, adult-focused animation. So, you know, we're looking to see a lot more of that happening um, over 
you know, these next few months and until next year, and hopefully that trend continues. So. Oh yeah, and I, I I think it is. It's the animation industry. You know, talk about heat. It's on fire. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Kirsten Murtha, who's a, an animation producer at Netflix recently on on MMFM Digital, and she you know, she said that, you know, she is, you know, full on and that, you know, Netflix is looking to build a powerhouse of an animation division, you know, to, to compete against the likes of the Pixar's and Disney animation and Warner brothers. She was a former executive at Warner animation and worked on some of the Lego movies there. And so, you know, she sees that this is such a growth sector uh, because of, you know, how much animation content we were consuming before the pandemic and the fact that it is, you know, a safer way to create content. In, in these times, you know, that they're just going to push harder than ever before. So it's definitely one of the biggest bright spots and driving forces of the industry. And, and obviously speaking of driving, the drive-ins are also very popular right now. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that something? Drive-ins making a roaring comeback. Yeah. Yeah. They always say everything old becomes new again, eventually. So yeah, uh, this is, this is a throwback that's kind of spread all over the country now. You know, they're, uh, I think at one point there were only like maybe one or 200 drive-in screens left in the entire country. And now that number is climbing and, you yeah. know, some of them are, you know, um, full time drive-ins. Others are these sort of pop-ups that are, are, are opening up everywhere from, you know, theme parks to restaurant parking lots, everyone just looking for a social activity that respects social distancing. And it seems like this is an interesting way to do it. Yeah. What I thought was, you know, really cool is William Gar Garcia, who is, mm -hmm. you know, one of the early, uh, early uh, people in terms of the MMFM, Miami Media and Film Market growth, uh, was speaking on the distribution of a film that he was involved in. And mm -hmm. uh, the, the amount of screens, I believe he said 200 screens, um, right. that he's going to open up on were, uh, heavily skewed towards drive-ins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's telling. And it's cool. Yeah. Like I said, I think it's cool, you know, that, you know, you're going to have distribution um, still, you know, with, uh, with, with uh, a lot of the situations going on. And, you know, as a young, young kid, I remember going to the drive-in and like, like I said, cool. It's a really cool experience. So certainly uh, that's exciting that, you know, that opportunity has opened up. People find a way in the end. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have to get creative, but we're a creative industry. And I think this is a fun sort of retro way to get people, you know, actively thinking about the theatrical experience, you know, uh, whether or not this is going to be a fad and just going to last a couple of months or if it's going to be a longer term part of, you know, distribution strategy, who knows, but it's, it's fun in the short term, uh, yeah. especially if you have a cool little genre movie like Bill Garcia has and, you know, he gets to kind of, you know, play like, you know, a, a marketing executive back in the 50s and 60s, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah. and just kind of see where it goes. You know, I think for a smaller budget movie in the, you know, under $10 million range, it's definitely feasible for that to be part of your business plan. It's, I don't think it's ultimately going to help the next, you know, Marvel movie or DC comics movie, but you know, for some of these smaller films, it's, it's really cool. And I think it's, it's a great way to, to kind of get the industry excited again about theatrical distribution. Yeah. And I could see it come, you know, being in the mix of things. So I can mm -hmm. see it, um, being, uh, a cool marketing option 
for even some of the bigger tent poles. So, you know, they have, you know, this release that's on theaters. Theaters probably, you know, when they really come in, I think they're up at 25% right now, you know, mm -hmm. but to have that option of watching your film in that 25%, you know, filled theater uh, versus being able to watch it in a drive-in with your family all in the car together. Drive-in right. experience oftentimes is a little bit cheaper because, you know, you drive in with your, you know, you stop at Kentucky Fried Chicken and, you know, bring in your own snacks and, you know, the whole family is there and you're together, you know? Right. So, you know, having that cool experience together, you know, could be a really nice marketing option. I could see the commercials now, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, with your cousin hiding in the trunk with that 12 piece. There <laughs> 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 in, get in. Uh, yeah. Sorry, man. I, I forgot about the Martinez way. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I but I think that 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 should be, you know, um, you know enveloped into the in, into the whole fray of things that I certainly would love to uh, see some offerings. And then, you know, with the drive in experience, they show two and sometimes three films at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the double feature. That's another thing. So, yeah, all sorts of fun stuff going on in that world. And then, you know, in terms of fun and, and entertainment and things that have been keeping us busy these last few months, you know, we got to talk about the gaming industry. That's been another sector that has exploded and it's not going to be slowing down anytime soon, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, you know, have been crammed into their homes. So certainly, and gaming has evolved so much, you know, it's become more than gaming you know they have these contests around the world there's a lot of money involved in the uh the competitions i didn't say contests i mean i didn't mean contests per se it's competitions because contests right. you enter and you see if you could win these competitions you know people are winning millions of dollars and mm. and it's very it's social you know it's a way to connect you know online with other people so that's you know kind of a second tier of it and a third tier is you know these consoles are no longer just the games themselves. They're huge communities. And so this ecosystem that's been built up around these communities uh, is another, uh, gaming is storytelling at this point. You know, the games are very cinematic, right. very involved. And um, with these communities involved, then you have this kind of experience that's connected. It's a connecting, mm -hmm. connecting experience. So we only look to see that industry grow further. Next week, I think we're going to have the return of intern Andre. To speak oh, on, yes. <laughs> to, speak, to speak further on, um, on the gaming industry. Um, I am a big gamer myself, but not as big as big intern Andre. So uh, oh. we'll have him come in next week and, and speak a little bit more on the growth of that seg sector. So, yeah, yeah. I think the last time we spoke to him, we were talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, that's right. So yeah, we were talking about games. games, you know, going <laughs> in. Now we're talking about games going out. So yeah, no, exactly. So that 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 their theatrical run got cut short, I think, by the pandemic. But it actually made a little comeback, also, I think, in a couple of drive-ins. Um, and and so they were able to get a little bit of an afterlife uh, back in May, and now I think it's all straight to VOD and. And some kind of stream. Yeah, but they but, made money. Yeah. yeah, but that movie made yeah. money. So yeah, 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 yeah. They pulled yeah, they off something. Kind of, they did something. But it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting world. There's so much going on, and, and obviously we're excited that even in this scenario we're able to to come back with some interesting podcasts, you know, 
And, and yeah, we hope we can continue to bring you these interesting interviews. We've got some big ones coming up, right? Yeah, yeah. there's, you know, they're stacked back. Um, The (laughs) pandemic has slowed us down a bit, but uh, we're coming, as I said, at the top of the key, uh, roaring back with a lot of heat. So uh, stay tuned. The next week we have a big one. And the following week we have a big one and then on and on and on like a domino. So um, thank you all for tuning in. I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm JL Martinez. And we will see you, hear you next week. <laughs> Dolly.